But dear congregation, we come uh, to consider this evening the uh, next Lord's Day and the next question in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism, which uh, you can see on your outline there is question 69. In the, in the uh, previous cat, uh, Lord's Days, we, considered, uh, we started to consider the sacraments. And you'll remember that the sacraments we were taught are intended to more clearly proclaim to us the promise of the gospel. Right? That's what we saw in, verse, or in, uh, in uh, question and answer 66 that the sacraments were instituted by God so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel. That's in question 66. So we hear the gospel, right? We hear the gospel from week to week. It's verbally proclaimed to us. But now the Lord will give us a picture of it. Right? We even asked that question some time ago. Are we allowed to have object lessons in our preaching? And the answer is yes, the two that the Lord has instituted. The sacrament of baptism, and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So both sacraments then are intended to more clearly portray to us, to more clearly uh, explain to us, as it were, the promise of the gospel. Well, what is it exactly then that they more clearly explain to us? That was given us in question 67. Yes, the Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and confirms, right, or more clearly explains to us in the gospel, or, by the, or more clearly by the holy sacraments, that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. So it's important then that we keep that in our minds, right? And we established that from the scriptures last week, that both sacraments, yes, there are some differences between the sacraments, and we'll talk about that, but both sacraments have this in common, that they are intended to establish, to focus, and to fix our faith upon the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That is the function of both sacraments. So then the question that is before us today is, how does baptism do that? So let's read question 69. How does holy baptism remind and assure you, right, and then here's that, the function of both sacraments, that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally. Both sacraments are meant to do that for us. And so the question then tonight is, how does baptism do that? And the answer given us is, in this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it promised that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity, that is, all my sins. So there we have the subject of the sermon then this, e this evening. The purpose of both sacraments is to fix our faith on the one sacrifice of Christ. And the question before us then is how does baptism do that? Now naturally, dear congregation, as we seek to answer that question, we want to turn to the scripture. We want to open the Bible and we want to find that place in the Bible that will explain to us what is baptism? How does baptism fix our faith upon the one sacrifice of Christ? Well, the catechism has kind of led us there by saying that Christ instituted this outward washing. 
Well, we know where that happened, right? We know that that happened in Matthew 28, right just prior to Christ's ascension into heaven. Christ said these famous words, we all know them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But we're not entirely satisfied with that, are we? That doesn't really help us to answer the question. It's always interesting, isn't it, when we think about baptism, how the Bible just says that Jesus baptized, John the Baptist baptized people, but we long for an explanation. What does this mean? It does not appear that, that either of these men, Jesus or John the Baptist, explained to us. They just, they just seem to assume that, of course, we all know what baptism is and what it means. And maybe this is why there's so much controversy in the Christian church about baptism. Because there's so little explicit teaching in the Bible about what baptism means. Now, my friends, this is doubly a problem for you if you limit yourself to the New Testament. If you believe that the Old Testament is a dispensation that has passed, which of course it has, but that has passed and has no further teaching and relevance for the New Testament church, now you're really limited, aren't you? in terms of how you can understand what baptism is. Now, in the Reformed churches, we don't do that, do we? We don't limit ourselves to the New Testament. And so I want to give you this very important principle for how we read the Bible as Reformed people. On my outline, this would be the what-to-do question. This, my friends, is this critical principle. New Testament practices and words are explained in the Old Testament. I really wish that, if that's the only thing you got out of this, well, no, I hope you get more out of this sermon, but that is such an important principle. New Testament words and practices are explained for us, opened up for us, in the Old Testament. And that's an important point to remember, especially when we come to something like baptism. Because as I've said, John the Baptist, he simply comes and he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And, and we, we, we struggle to know, well, what do you mean, John? What is baptism, John? And what does it mean? Why do we get baptized? When should we get baptized? Who should get baptized? But there's no such explanation given. Well, now, in those situations, we must go back into the Old Testament. The Old Testament, you might say, is the, is the, is that, is, is, is the dictionary. May I say it that way this evening? It's the dictionary that explains for us New Testament words and practices that are unclear. Now, in one sense, that's so obvious, right, when you think of the time frame. You know, we often don't think about this. But do you ever think of how many years we are, are, are roughly in the New Testament from, say, the time Jesus was born to the time the book of Revelation was finished? That's roughly 100 years. Roughly 100 years. Do you know how many years elapsed? Let's just say from the time of Abraham 
to the time of Jesus. 2,500 years. 2,500 years. Like if you represented that on a timeline, children, maybe you could do that sometime. You'd have to, be a, you'd have to learn how to measure, right? But 2,500 years, and then a little slice of time there at the end that represents the New Testament. So even just visually, if you can kind of imagine that in your minds, it makes it clear to us how these New Testament authors brought over much of the teaching that they had taken up in the Old Testament. Now, we saw that when we talked about elders in the church. Remember, we, we, we said that the elders, the office of elder in the New Testament, really was largely just taken over from the Old Testament elders of the, of the synagogues and the Old Testament congregations. So, one more verse then that's very important in this respect, and that is Hebrews 9 and verse 10. Because here we have an explicit reference that I think is really a key, a key verse for how we're going to understand baptism. Now the apostle in Hebrews 9 is talking about the new covenant that is coming in, in the ministry of Christ. And obviously I'm not going to take up all that, but if you look with me at verse 10, at verse 10 it says, Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, Regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Do you see the word baptism in that verse? It's there. It's that word washings. In verse 10, since they relate, he's talking about a lot of these Old Testament ceremonies and rituals, since they relate only to food and drink and various, you see it there, washings, various baptisms, it says. That's the word in the, in the original language, baptisms. So in the New Testament time, now we see an explicit connection that they understood that word baptism and their their understanding of that word was informed by all what had taken place in the Old Testament, especially all these purification rituals that took place in the Old Testament times. So if we are going to understand what baptism is, if we are going to understand what Jesus meant when he said, "'Go ye into all nations, baptizing them,' if we're going to understand what John the Baptist meant when he says, repent ye and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and these words, these words are explained for us in the Old Testament. So let's do that, my friends. In the Old Testament, we find that there are many of these purification, these washings that take place. There are purifications by fire, purifications by blood, and purifications by water. Now, if you turn with me to Numbers chapter 31. Numbers chapter 31. In Numbers 31, we find a a teaching that God gives to his people in terms of when they capture something in war. And you'll notice that In verse 19 at the end, it says, Purify yourselves, you and your captives, on the third day and on the seventh day. So I'm in Numbers 31 at the end of verse 19. Purify yourselves. But then notice that it says uh, in verse 20, And you shall purify yourselves, every garment and every article of leather and the work of goat's hair and all articles of wood. 
And, and look at verse 22. Only the gold and the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire, and it shall be cleaned. So to, 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 to bring that metal that they had captured in battle into Israelite society, it first had to be cleansed. Now that doesn't mean that they got water and washed off the dirt off it, right? We're talking about a, a ceremonial cleanliness, a ritual cleanliness. That metal had to be converted from pagan use into the use amongst the people of God, the holy and sanctified people of God. And the way that that was done was by fire, if it was metal. Now I leave that and I turn back to Leviticus 14. And this is the text that we read together. And without going into every detail that was given us there, because some of them are quite interesting, aren't they? You see this elaborate ritual that took a person who had leprosy and was therefore in a state of uncleanness. Now again, you have to understand, dear congregation, that uncleanness doesn't mean that they were physically dirty, right? It means that they were ceremonially unclean. That in terms of the religion of Israel, they were barred from access to all the religious worship. They were not allowed to participate in the tabernacle worship to bring sacrifices or to come into the presence of God because they were unclean. That's what it meant to be unclean. But now if you were a leper, by the way, the word leprosy stands for a whole variety of skin diseases. There wasn't one sickness that was leprosy. So if you had a kind of leprosy and you were healed from it and you were established and proven to be truly healed, then there was this process through which you had to pass, by which you moved from a state of uncleanness to a state of cleanness. And we read that in Leviticus 14, right? The two birds, the hyssop, the scarlet, and again, without bringing back all those details, you remember reading this elaborate procedure through which they had to pass in order to be brought out of uncleanness and into cleanness. They had to put blood on the ear and on the big a toe and on the thumb, right? And again, all of that may very well have had its significance. Sometimes it's difficult to know. But certainly, a cleansing ceremony. And that cleansing ceremony then, after the person had leprosy and was brought back to a state of cleanliness, would in the New Testament time have been understood as a kind of baptism. Again, I take you back to Hebrews 9, verse 10, right? Those various washings or those various cleansings were known as a baptism. We have another baptism in Numbers chapter 19. In Numbers chapter 19, we have the person who has touched a corpse. Now you can see this in verse, 14, or verse 11. In Numbers 19 and verse 11, the one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water. Now, the water is a very specific thing. Uh, I'm not going to go into that right now, but if you go back into the chapter of 19, you'll read that they had to prepare, a, they actually had a recipe to prepare a water of purification. It had the ashes of a burnt heifer in it. It had uh, some, some cedar in it and different things. And that water then was called the water of purification. And if you touched a corpse... You came into a state of uncleanness. 
Now, my friends, it was not a sin to touch a corpse. Don't, don't misunderstand the text. It was not a sin to touch a corpse, but by touching that corpse, you brought yourself into a state of uncleanness. And you had to be cleansed in order to be returned to a state of cleanness again, so that you could once again participate in religious practices and religious worship. Now, the way you did that is laid out for us here. On the third day, you were sprinkled, and on the seventh day, you were sprinkled, and then you would be clean. Verse 14, this is the law when a man dies in a tent. Again, I'm in Numbers 19 and verse 14. Whenever anybody died in a tent, again, this shows you how it wasn't sinful, right? You didn't become unclean because you had done something sinful, right? It was no sin of yours that somebody died in your tent. But this is the law when a man dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. And again, the procedure is laid out there, how they were to be brought into a state of cleanliness. So there I give you some of the examples of uncleanness. That would have been corpse uncleanness, as I'm calling it there in the outline. So my friends, now imagine again, 2,500 years of Israelite history. How often do you think the Israelite people would have seen these baptisms or these washings, these purification rituals? Right? We have to believe that they would have seen it on a regular basis. For sure, at least, as often as someone died, they would have seen this ritual. Because people did not die in hospitals or in hospices, right? They died in their tent. And so every time that happened, that family had to undergo that baptism, that purification ritual, in order to be brought into a state of cleanness once again. So now, with all that past history, we come into the hills of Judea, and we see a man standing there, and he's preaching. John the baptizer. And we know he's the son of a priest. Right? We know that, right? He's the son of a priest. He would have been very familiar with all the Jewish laws on these points. And John the Baptist steps up, and he says, Repent ye, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now to us, we're left thinking, I wonder what he means by baptism. But to his audience there would have been no question. There would have been no doubt about that. Why, just last week, Uncle so-and-so, they might have said, died. And we saw the priest come. And we saw him bring that special pot with that water in it. And he took the branch of hyssop. And he flung that water on that tent. He flung that water on that person and on that family so that they could be restored to cleanness. We saw him do it on the third day. We saw him do it again on the seventh day. And then they were clean. You see, it's only us who have this issue of wondering, what is this baptism thing? What is he talking about? For them, it was as routine as, 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 as almost anything else in their life. And now John the baptizer steps forward and he says, repent and be baptized, be cleansed, be purified. And we know that only a day later he cried out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How did John the Baptist preach that his audience should prepare for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of the Lamb of God? He said, you have to be cleansed. You have to be purified. You can't come into his presence as you are. You need that purification. What a humbling thing for the Israelites to hear. 
But now we come to Christian baptism. Remember, John's baptism was not Christian baptism. Again, you'll remember when we studied Acts 19, right? Those disciples in Ephesus had been baptized with John's baptism, but that was not Christian baptism. That was not baptism in the name of Jesus. So they were rebaptized. Now, much of the, of the, of the picture there was the same. But now Christian baptism is baptism in the name of Jesus. So when we come to the New Testament and we ask ourselves, how, remember the question that we started out with, how does baptism fix my faith upon the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ? And we come to Christian baptism. Now in Luke 3 and verse 16, in Luke 3 and verse 16, we read of John the Baptist coming, and it says that he, uh, John answered and said to them all, so Luke 3 and verse 16, as for me, I baptize you with water. That was John's baptism. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You see, John is saying that my baptism is just a preparation for the coming of the Great One, the Messiah. When he comes, he also is going to have a baptism. He also is going to have a washing, a purification. But his baptism will be with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, we already know that fire, too, is a purifying agent, right? It was used to bring all the metal objects that they captured in battle to bring them into a state of cleanliness. So once again we are told that baptism by John, that Jesus, when he comes, his baptism will be with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, what happened? Well, this is, this is, uh, this is review for us, right? We, we considered these chapters when we studied the book of Acts just recently. But let me just remind you what happened on the day of Pentecost. That in Acts 2 and verse 38, in Acts 2 and verse 38, Peter says, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There it is, congregation. If your sins are going to be cleansed away, you need to be baptized, you need to be purified. And it won't do to be purified in water, but you need that purification that the Holy Spirit brings. Only He will bring you to the feet of Christ. You'll be baptized into the name of Jesus. And when you are baptized into the name of Jesus, you are baptized into Jesus. You are joined and united with Jesus Christ. And his death becomes your death. And his blood becomes a cleansing agent for you. And your sins are cleansed away. Then our text, and we actually read this just this morning, didn't we? In the morning service. But in Acts 22, verse 16, Paul, or Ananias, speaking to Paul, says, Acts 22 and verse 16, And now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now this text is so important, my friends, because it so clearly connects the idea of baptism with a cleansing, with a washing. Right? Wash away your sins. Now again, let's not confuse washing away your sins with a baptism with water. Right? It was the baptism in the Holy Spirit joining the person to Jesus Christ that washed away their sins. But still, the picture given us in baptism 
is that of a washing and of a cleansing. That's the conclusion then that I draw here this evening from baptism. The question that we began the sermon this morning or this evening was how does baptism fix our faith upon that one sacrifice of Jesus Christ? How does it do it? Well, it does by setting before us a picture of a cleansing, of a washing. And that washing, my friends, represents to us the sins that cleave to each one of us and the guilt that is brought to us because of those sins being cleansed and washed away. So the picture of, of, of dirt that clings to our bodies, our physical bodies, and we wash it away by, by washing ourselves with water, by bathing ourselves with water, that is now brought into the church as an object lesson for what happens to us when we are saved. What is the one sacrifice of Christ to us? It cleanses us, it forgives us from all our sins. Now, in the rest of the New Testament, there will be other terms used to talk about baptism. Paul will say it's like being buried with Christ and rising with him. Our text calls it a washing in Colossians chapter 2. Paul will call it a circumcision. 1 John 1 was our call to worship this evening. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all iniquity. So my friends, if I can go back then to the catechism that gave us, that came to us tonight. How does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally? And the answer given us was in this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it promised that as surely as water washes away the dirt from my body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away my soul's impurity. That is all my sins. And I trust I've been able to trace that for you from the very beginning pages of the New Testament. That when a person brought upon himself this uncleanness, he passed through this purification ritual. And how that was carried over into the New Testament in the sacrament of baptism. That by that cleansing is represented to us before our eyes. Not that we only hear the gospel, but now we may also see the gospel. And it's represented before our eyes that the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from sin and wash us in that washing, in that, that blessed sacrament represents that to us, my friends. Well, I hope you can see, I hope you can see that the meaning of baptism, though not clearly explained for us in the New Testament, is quite clearly explained to us in the Old Testament. And that's why we lean hard on the Old Testament as a dictionary for us to help us to understand these New Testament words. And again, that's a critical principle that we understand as we read the Bible. Let me make two points of application on this. My friends, our access to God. Do you desire to have access to God? Do you desire to come into God's presence? Do you desire to meet the Lamb of God? You hear the preacher stand here say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How can you come into his presence? Because the access to God is blocked by your sin. You cannot come to God. You cannot come to God in the way that you were born. 
because your sin and your guilt rises up against you in the courtroom of God and calls for your condemnation. Your sin rises up to God and fills him with anger. The wrath of God goes out against the sin, our sin. And so access is blocked, the door is closed. Do you see that tonight? You know, Dr. John Gerstner one time went to a church and they, he, they had asked him, they were vacant, they had asked him to come and do a baptism. And he said, sure, I'll be happy to do that. So he came and, and, and they said, uh, when it was time for the service to begin, we have a custom here, we hope you won't mind doing this, but we generally baptize the baby with a white lily. Okay? Dr. Gerstner said, well, that's fine, now, but, but what's the meaning of it then? Well, what's the purpose of that? What's the significance of it? And they said, well, the white lily represents the innocence of the child. And you can imagine how Dr. Gerstner drew himself up and said, what? Why on earth are you baptizing the child for then? Why does an innocent child need to be cleansed? I mean, if you're going to talk about what the child is after the cleansing of the Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, certainly we can talk about a white lily. But isn't that so much of the sentimental culture that fills churches today, my friends, that we think of the innocent little child there? But my friends, don't forget that that child brings with it into this world the guilt of Adam and the guilt of all the original sin. And that child needs to be cleansed from that sin. Whether it's an infant or whether it's an adult, the same thing is always needed. Our access to God is blocked by our sin. But baptism preaches to us. Baptism preaches to us that we can be cleansed from that sin and that the doors will open that will bring us into God's presence once again. That by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, so graphically and represented for us in this beautiful picture of baptism, that we can be led into the presence of God once again. And the door that was locked tight against us flies open. Why? Because we're as innocent as a white lily? No, my friends, but because Christ. Blood cleanses us so that we're as pure as a white lily. Christ's work does that for us. Christ's work opens that door for us. And so that the access to God, the door is thrown open by baptism. And what a beautiful picture that is. What a glorious picture that is, my friends, to see that. Baptism, in the one, in the one sense, brings us a terrible message, doesn't it? That this child, that this adult, whoever it may be that's being baptized is so corrupt and so guilty before God that God could turn that person into hell forever. But the preaching of baptism goes farther, and it says that there is this cleansing so that you can be received by God again and reconciled to him. Remember, my friends, the sacraments represent the gospel to us more clearly. It's the gospel in a picture. Do you feel that? Every time, my friends, you see the waters of baptism coming down on a child or on an adult or on anyone. That's what it's meant to do for us. It's meant to bring us to that place where we acknowledge our sins and our corrupt, our, our corruption and a blocked access to God. And by baptism, that door is thrown open. Well, my friends, in the second application, I'd like to talk to you about these adverbs these precious adverbs that we find in our catechism. Would you look with me at that? In our catechism, 
All the children here know that the adverbs end in L-Y, right? So when we look at this catechism, it says, and if you have a pen, you can just circle these. And I'm looking at the answer. In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it promised that, and here they come, as surely, as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body. And here comes another one. So certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity. Those are so precious, aren't they, to the people of God. Because when we feel our sin, my friends, and when we feel the conviction of it, we may hear the gospel, we may believe it, but we can tremble. We can wonder, will God really receive me? Will I come into the presence of God and will he strike me down, which I certainly deserve? And we can begin to wonder. We can begin to waver. Do you remember when we were talking about the Passover? And the blood smeared upon the doorposts. And perhaps a child coming and saying, Father, did you really smear that blood on the doorpost? Or will the angel of death also come into this house? But now we have adverbs, don't we? We have a sacrament. So that even a child, everyone can see it. That as surely, as surely as water washes, so certainly. What does that mean tonight for us, dear congregation? It means that a sacrament is meant to be seen. I remember a man once who used to take his children and let them stand on the bench during church whenever there was a baptism. It was quite a large church, so you couldn't really see over everybody. But there would be his children standing in the bench. Why? Because he wanted them to see. He wanted them to see what is represented by these adverbs as shortly as water washes away the dirt from my body. So certainly. You know what that means for you young people. I look at you this, this evening. I see you sitting here tonight and you never can imagine the issues and the events, the things that you're going to come to in your life. But in your darkest moment, in your darkest moment, you can reach up the hand of faith and take hold of that adverb. You can take hold of it. Lord, I am baptized. I am baptized. And as surely as this water cleanses me from dirt, so surely are my sins cleansed away. I see many elderly people in our congregation tonight. You know what you can do at the gates of death? You know what you can do when you receive that news that your life is over? If you have such a deathbed? You can just reach out your hand and take hold of those adverbs. And you can find such a strength there that when I stand in the presence of God, that as surely as so many times happened in my life, I cleanse dirt from my body, that so surely will Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit wash away my soul's impurity. And you can find such a confidence there. You see, my friends, the sacraments are so much about the assurance of our salvation. They're about, they're about how a person gets saved. Certainly that's represented to us. But the sacraments are about more clearly representing to us the truth of the gospel. Why? Because we are weak. We doubt. We waver. But the sacrament preaches to us by means of a picture. And it says there's one sacrifice of Christ 
And if you have both feet planted on that sacrifice, you can never fail. That not death itself can take your feet off that rock of ages. That perfect cleansing that we receive, the water, that's just an imperfect cleansing, but it's a picture, and it points us higher to that perfect cleansing that we have in the death of Christ. My friends, baptism can often be abused. I think I put that on the back. Baptism can often be abused by, by it's almost people think that, well, if I'm baptized, I'm saved. I'll just check a box. And, I, uh, you know, I was baptized when I was such and such an age, so I must, it must be fine with me. That's a terrible abuse of baptism, isn't it? But I don't want to talk about that this evening. I warn you against it, but I want you to bring you to the proper use of baptism. Because if in your life you say, I am baptized, and if by that expression you mean that that baptism and the memory of my baptism and the memory of the many times I see baptism brings me back to the feet of Jesus, then I find so much assurance and so much comfort there that I can never be shaken. That's the proper use of baptism. That's what Martin Luther used to do. You can read that in his biography, that when the devil attacked Luther, he would say, I am baptized. I hope, my friends, that that's also for you tonight. I am baptized. I am cleansed in the blood of Christ. May God grant it for his name's sake. Let's pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, we've seen baptisms in this church. We have the memory of our own children's baptism, and we have uh, that picture firmly fixed in our minds. But Lord, we do pray earnestly that you would bring back that picture to us in the moments when we need it the most, so that we would never forget that we are baptized and that that imperfect picture represents a higher spiritual reality that is so valuable and so precious that we never can overestimate it. Lord, I pray that you would help us then to rest our whole soul upon that one sacrifice of Christ and that both the preaching of the gospel and the sacraments would lead us once more to say, my whole salvation, the entirety of my salvation depends completely upon the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Lord, I pray that for young and old this evening and ask that you would work these things in our hearts by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's turn in the red hymnal to number 278. 278. And sing nothing but the blood of Jesus. 278, and we'll sing the five stanzas in the red hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.